You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello, I'm James O'Brien. Welcome to episode 29 of Unfiltered with the um, sort of soul singer and hip-hop artist Plan B. The first question I'll ask him is, is, is how do I address him? But this guy, I, I, I can't wait to get to know this guy a bit better because... I know it can sometimes be a bit pompous to describe popular culture in, in quite highfalutin terms, but he, he is a chronicler of our times and also of a class divide that I think is is more pronounced in modern Britain than perhaps it has been at any other point in my memory. So he's here to talk about his new album, um, Heaven Before All Hell Breaks Loose, which is out on May the 4th. But if you just scan over some of the stuff he's done, both professionally and personally and you know about the stuff he's done personally because of the way he's sung about it professionally then you'll understand why i've got a feeling that we're going to cover quite a lot of ground how does it work because I, I, i'm a 46 year old profoundly uncool individual so I, I i now worry about addressing you as mr b plan b mr drew ben what, what's the what, how should i Address Ben's fine. Is it? Yeah. So Ben's where did fine. Plan B come from then? Let's start with that. When you when you get into the the rap game, you need a rap name, and uh, you know as a kid you go through a lot of stupid things that have nothing to do with who you are. Sure. You know? So I went through a lot of those stupid names. <laughs> what then, well, well, which ones did we you reject? Get into that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it got to the point where I wrote um, kids off my first album, that was the first ever rap song that I created. I'd, I'd been emceeing before that and I'd been writing lyrics f- f- to garage music. But the first time I, I ever actually sat down and changed the tempo to a hip-hop tempo and, and wrote a rap song, the first thing that came out of me was kids. And um, it, it suddenly, it went from being something that I kind of enjoyed doing and a side thing that I'd done because I was songwriting before that. I taught myself how to play guitar at 14 and um, was fortunate to have someone in my life that taught me how to structure songs and, and, and taught me what music to listen to. I actually learned how to write songs from uh, Tracks on My Tears, Smokey Robinson. Um, it's not, it's not yeah, bad. It's not so a bad my, starting point. My godfather said that's like, I think he called it the first ever pop song because he said the way in which it was structured. He said yeah. this is where all classic pop uh, song structure all kind of derives from this song. I don't know if he's correct about that, but that's how he, <laughs> he put it to me. So he taught me that song, and it's basically the the formula of uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, yes. chorus. And then he taught me how the importance of a middle eight, etc. And um, so I was writing songs. So, as soon as I learned that, I was like prolifically write, uh, writing songs and finishing them. Um, in, in that classic... Yeah, just in that, in that song structure, yeah. People think Strickland Banks was a departure, but actually yeah. Strickland Banks was like no, going was back original. to what you were doing before it was the, the first, first album. Yeah, it was the first thing. So then um so then like then I wrote Kids. Um and uh, and by the way, at this point I I've ne- I was never a trained singer, so I would I would write songs and I'd have to get my friends to tune the guitar. And some of them would tune it by ear. So the key of the guitar would drop from standard tuning and it would drop down to like E flat, yeah. B. 
depending on who came round, they'd play the first <laughs> note and they'd tune it by ear. <laughs> so um, I was, I'd write a song and then, it, I, you know, I'd be singing it comfortably and everything. Then someone would come round with a proper guitar tuner and properly tune the guitar to E. And I'd go, right, I could finally play you this song I've written. I'd play the song and I wouldn't be able to sing it. It'd be really kind of hard, you know, on my throat. And sure. I was like, I'm, I'm obviously not cut out for this. That was why you thought you didn't have... Yeah, I thought, well, I'm a good songwriter, but, I, you know, I'm a very temperamental singer. Like, some days I can sing, some days I can't. <laughs> I had no idea it was to do with the tuning of the guitar, right? Seriously? Yeah, so... How old were you at this point? About 18, 19 or a bit younger? Um, 16, 17. I can't remember when I wrote Kids. And no one else um, noticed? No one said, mate, you, you, you just need to... No, they just said they the just said you, no, they just said you got to practice. It's just you got to practice. You you know get your build your vocal cords, their muscles. You just got to do it every day and all that. Oh, okay. And later on, I even did have a couple lessons. It, it still didn't work. But anyway, going back, <laughs> back right, to plan B. Going back, right? When I wrote Kids, I realised that I was a rapper. I, I couldn't believe that I'd written that song and it was so on point and it. There wasn't a lyric that I was uncomfortable with or I felt it needed to be rewritten. I was just like, this is, I need to take this seriously now, which means I need to take myself seriously and I need like a proper name. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going through names and I'm thinking, all my friends call me B. My name's Ben and for short they call me B and I just feel like if I'm going to have a name, it should have a B in it so that my friends don't feel like they have to call me by this new stage name they can still call me B but even in the act of calling me B they'd still be calling me by my stage name I get it and then yeah one night I just uh, was just going through a list of names that have B in it and I came across plan B and just kind of sat up in my bed and went that's the one and it, it was for me it was fitting because obviously I'd started off as as a a singer songwriter mm -hmm. you know and I'd I'd made that decision that I'm not a good enough singer, so I'll carry on writing songs uh, behind the scenes, but in public I'll be known as a rapper. And so Plan B felt... It's right on every level. Yeah, it was, it was fitting because, like, the Plan A kind of failed. And actually... Although on the on the first album, there, you do let loose a couple of times, don't oh, you? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. can hear the soul and the Yeah, yeah, but in a studio environment, I was able to get enough takes out of me and, you know, you can tune things and stuff and, you know, get stuff sounding nice, right. get some female backing singers to back it up, <laughs> thicken it up a bit. Sure. You know, the thing is, when, when we came to doing it live, I struggled. I struggled oh, okay. to sing the, the choruses and stuff how I wanted. And for years, a good couple of years, I was performing like that. Um, because, yeah, I, I guess ultimately that's why I call myself Plan B because I felt like the Plan A had failed. But then there was influences in my life at the time that was that knew I could sing and was like, look, if you're going to do this rap thing, you've you've still got to sing. You know, sure. was, there's no point getting like a singer to come to the gigs when you can do it yourself. So I decided to limit the amount I was singing and just sing on uh, choruses. But then through performing the songs and, and really, like, I was always confident when I was rapping and when I was singing, I just felt really naked. I just said to the band, I said, look, I'm just going to stop singing. I'm going to get a singer to come and sing the choruses. And the drummer went, why don't you just tune the guitar down? I said, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, just, just tune the guitar down to the key below. So he knew. I, I, yeah, he, he knew, but he'd been working with me for years. And, 
You know, I'd been banging on about... Uh, we probably thought it was your artistic temperament yeah, yeah, or something perhaps, like that, you know? Perhaps, you didn't, you didn't want to interfere. Yeah, in the end, it was like, what I now know is like the simplest kind of solution. And as soon as that happened, it's like flicking a switch. You found yeah, your voice. So, so, yeah, so I got the tuner out, but I, I knew which string was what, you know? Yeah. Like, um, E, D, G, you know, and, and, you know, in standard tuning. But then when you drop it, it changes. So somebody had to help me get it into the key. So what would have happened? And then, and then I just played it, and I went, is that better? I went, yeah, that's better. I said, can we go lower? I went, yeah, of course you can, mate. And then they tuned it down one more, <laughs> and then suddenly this voice come out of me. Well, so what would have happened if... I mean, there wouldn't have been Who Needs Actions when you got words then. There wouldn't if, have been Strickland Banks. No, I'd, 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 I'd have seen it the other way around. Because if, 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 if you'd had that guitar tuning moment years previous... Oh, then, right, yeah. What would yeah, have happened? Right. yeah, 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 for real. Or yeah. if I'd never have had it. Yeah. But th- well, then you'd have carried on rapping and exactly. not singing. But I, yeah. I wonder whether, because the first album is so raw, um, you know, referencing everything from your mum's love life through to the death of mm. Damilola Taylor, mm. that that kind of needed to be rapped, didn't it, at that, in 2006? Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying about this new album. This new album, like, everyone's saying, oh, there's no rap on it. I'm like... Like, the, the the context of this album, what it's about, it just doesn't feel right for me to rap on it. Sure. Because of the way in which I rap. You know, when, yes. when, when I rap, like, I I don't think you'll ever hear me do, like, a pop rap record. Like, I'm from that old school, hip-hop school of thought where it should be about your environment and it should be, like, a town crier talking about, like, the politics of the day and and, and not being afraid to, to get as gritty as you need to be. We've, we've jumped ahead. I want to take you back a bit, Ben, if I may. What, what were you like at school? I was very capable. There's a butt coming. Yeah, yeah, there's always a butt. There's there? always a butt. Um, no, I was very, I was very capable and, and intelligent enough to, to have um, got my GCSEs, but I think that my home environment and the things that was happening in my home environment just kind of made that impossible. You know, when you go to school in London and, you know, I was the minority in my school um, and it, I had to be tough because of that, you know. Minority because um, you were white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was no solidarity between the white kids in the school, you know, not the, not the kind of solidarity that the, the black and Asian kids had. So you, you had to be tough uh, and stand on your own two feet, which meant I got into a lot of fights. And in some ways, the stuff that was happening in, in my home environment prepared me for that, albeit the stuff that was happening in my, in my home environment also, like I said, make it, made it really impossible for me to learn. The, 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 the aggression and, 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 and violence that, that I uh, experienced at home basically put me into a position where I wasn't going to take shit from people at school, which means I wasn't going to be bullied, but then I couldn't learn because I was forever getting uh, suspended or kicked out of the class because I would stand up and fight people in the class. Because that was the personality you'd had to develop to to survive at home. Um, It sounds like you'd coiled yourself up so tightly at home that you couldn't let it go when you got to school. No, I mean, it was like, you're threatening me. Hmm. There's no way that you're going to beat me the way that I get beat at home. That's not happening. So we're not waiting till lunchtime. We're doing it right now. Because the thing is, if you wait till lunchtime and you have an altercation in the morning... You're angry in the morning and you're like, yeah, watch lunchtime, we're going to have it, right? And then, you know, a few hours pass and then you're not angry anymore and then you're just like... You still want to have a fight. And then you're just running through your head all the possibilities of things that might happen and shit. And, and, um, you know, I just couldn't deal with that anxiety. Sure. So um, 
I would just do it there and then, and that, that was the problem, you know, because um, the teachers would be like, look, you're bright enough to know that when when we warn you that you're going to do this again and we say we're going to put you on report, you're bright enough to know what you're doing. Therefore, every time you do it, you're you're kind of, you're, you're, you're making us look stupid. And there's only so many times we can we can allow that, you know, because there was other kids that I saw in the school that were much worse than me. And I used to say, he's much worse than me. That kid that keeps on frying the basketball at the, at the maths room and smashing the windows, like, I don't do that. Yeah. And like, yeah, but he's, he's, there's something wrong with him. We're ben, not looking obviously. out for him. They, they, you know, they would say, we, we're not looking out for him. We're not making allowances for him. We're making allowances for you and you're throwing them back in our face. Well, I'd say, I'd say it was more that they looked at it as some of the kids wasn't intelligent enough to understand actually sure. the, the trouble they was in and therefore it was kind of pointless. But with me, it's like, we know you're bright and we know you understand understand what like we're we're doing for you here yeah and it was it was my my head a year mr burgess that actually said to me in in year 10 he said look if we expel you if the school expels you in in year 10 then actually the the 100 percent of students in year 11 there'll be less students but those less students will make up the 100 percent Right. Now, if we get all rid of all the troublemakers in year 10, that's going to make us look good in the school leagues, right? Because it means that the, the, the percentage of kids that are passing their GCSEs is going to be greater sure. because you've got less kids. And he said, Ben, this, this shit is political. And I'm telling you, like, I don't want you to get expelled, but they will expel you. And you're, you're at that point where, where there's going to be no more allowances because there's, there's political figures within this school that are looking for people like you to expel and you painted a target on your back for them yeah yeah my circumstance did uh, yeah. well let's talk a bit about that because yeah. your dad left when you were a baby no i wasn't a baby no my mum and dad split up probably yeah okay but my dad was in my life um it's hazy when he left it would have been between five and seven i think that that he left and I've got an older sister who's like two school years older than me, but like she's only just over a year older than me. So it's a bit hazy as to how old, sure, which, you know, whether, whether it was six or seven, but around that period of time, yeah, he left. And do you remember? Do you remember him being there and then suddenly not being there? Anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough for a boy, particularly. I think in hindsight, it's tough. Yeah. Like when, you know, you go through puberty or you want to learn how to drive a car or you're the kid at school that doesn't know how to play football because you didn't have a dad who who, yes. who kind of got you into football. You can have social problems, yeah, growing up. But I'd, I wasn't aware of them, really, when I was younger. And I didn't really feel like a void, there was a void. Although there obviously was a void in my life, I didn't feel like there was because actually my experience with my own biological father was quite was quite negative um and i look back at it now and i i thank god that he wasn't in my life i think it was the best thing for me and i think if he would have been in my life it would have been you know my life would have been a, even more complicated um than it was so I, although i agree that i think that that uh, kids need their their fathers i think it, it, in my situation i think it was probably for the best that he wasn't around Although, when you mentioned why things were so tough when you were in year 10, it was because your mum by then had a relationship with someone who was, who was a very unhealthy influence. This is what you rapped about on the first album on, on, the, on the track, Mama Loves a Crackhead. Oh, no, sorry, sorry yeah, so, um, so that's not who I'm talking about. No, I know, I'm so, yeah. you're talking about your dad. No, 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 sorry, no, and I, need, I just need to, 
fill in some gaps. So, um, the Mama this is your fault for putting yeah. so much of your <laughs> life on record, yeah. you know. So, but... so Mama Loves a Crackhead is the relationship that my mum had with someone after my stepfather. Yes. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. So the negative. So there's three. There's yeah, the biological yeah, the step, yeah, and yeah. then and, and the thing is, the like, habit. like you said, I put a lot of my life on record. And now uh, the consequence of that is that now, like, we we have to talk about it quite publicly. And it is, well, you know, it's difficult not to, yeah? Yeah, And and I I think that I've made peace with my stepdad. He's still in my life. He's still in um, the rest of my family's life. And no one's going to try and sweep anything under the carpet here. You know, when I became a man, he he, he came up to me and he apologised for the, what he'd put me in and, and my family through when we was younger. You know, but the the point is that when I'm looking at my, my own self and my own actions, I have to take responsibility, yes, for what I did, but I also have to look at the reason behind why I was behaving that way. Yes. You know, and especially now that I'm working with kids, you know, in, in my in my PRU, because the kids that we're working with are all coming from similar um, home environments, you know, where those those home environments are making it impossible for them to learn. So violence um, was normal for you at, at home at that point? Yeah. Violence yeah. towards you and towards your mum? Yeah, like, look, I, I don't really want to talk about uh, the rest of the members of the family because that's for them if Absolutely. they want to talk about for that. Sure. So I don't sure. really want to delve into that. But, yeah... There was violence in my household, and I think that the, the violence that, that that I experienced from a young age definitely put me in a disposition when I was then going to um, a comprehensive school with other children and having having to you know deal with bullies yeah. and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, it, it it affected those things, which is why. When I went to the PRU, it's the best so thing for that people ever who don't, For me. people who don't know, I should say that's a pupil referral people unit. Pupil unit, yeah. So after you get expelled, yeah. these are the places yeah. that... You, I mean, potentially they can be problematical because lots of kids who've been slung out of school end up in the same place. So it's almost like a, a Petri dish for misbehaviour. But some people get it lucky, could, and it, you were one of the people who got no, lucky. No, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't see it that way. Go on. I, I see it this way. Um, those kids should have been in that school from the start. right. Those kids were always going to end up in that school and therefore we should recognise who those kids are in comprehensive and take them out before um, they do damage to the school and the other students and before we run out of time to help fix them. And that is why you've got involved. Yeah, definitely, because it's the best thing that ever happened to me and the best thing that happened to a lot of kids. But what... So there's two things here. Sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Ben, because there's you, you, you've got people who, who should be in a PRU because of... The, the life around them that has yeah. in, infected them in a way. It's the wrong word, but you know what I mean, influenced them. Yeah. And then you've got... Products other, of our, our environment, man. Bingo. So. And then you've got other kids who might have ADHD or something like that, which meant that they could never fit into a, a yeah. proper school environment. And you, you could pretty much, by year nine or ten, you'd be able to point at the ones that should have been in a PRU. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, um, the the great thing about PRU is you're basically it's 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 when I was there, there was a heavy emphasis on vocational subjects. So basically, anything that would give a child instant gratification, where they could basically yeah instantly succeed at something, and be showered with praise for it. First time for some of them. Well, like like you know that music, for instance. Yes. And when we got the music room at the school, some of the kids would get into it. 
Uh, you come in there, you know, a, a kid who you'd never expect to be playing bass guitar will be playing bass guitar, yeah? yeah. Um, uh, we, we, you know, I remember walking in when I was there, I walked in and there was a, a girl in a burqa playing drums and she was sick. And I'd come in with my guitar and I'd teach everyone my songs and Cliff, the music teacher, he'd be playing bass, I'd be playing guitar and singing and she would be on drums. And I have no idea what her name is or what she looks like. It didn't matter. It wasn't about that. It was just, just come in, she played drums, I've, I've done my thing. And it was beautiful. Now, when I, when I put the music room at the school, because Cliff passed away and he was never properly replaced, I'd done a BBC Three documentary yeah. there. Um, and afterwards, um, I got help from my record label and a big music fund and we put a music studio in there and so and a, and a full-time music teacher which I, who I've continued to pay for and so when I would go into the school I'd come in and some of the kids would be playing on instruments and getting on with it and then you just have another kid in the corner and so I would always go to the kid in the corner that wasn't engaging and I'd say why aren't you playing anything it's like oh, I, I don't want to play anything I said don't you like music yeah yeah I like music because everybody likes music right and I'm like, well, why don't you play something? He's like, no, I can't, I can't. I said, come over here, man. Just, just sit, sit on the drums. Take these sticks, or, or, or check this. And mm. I'd, I'd show them a little thing on the drums. Not that I'm a good drummer at all, but you know, I, I can kind of get about. And then I say, now you do it. And some of these kids, they're going into that situation just believing that they cannot do it. Yeah. And then they try it, and they got rhythm. They're keeping in time. They've got coordination and they're doing it. And instantly you can see the look on their face. They're like, this is great, right? And you, it is great, therefore you're telling them it's great. So it's not like you're lying. So they're getting instant gratification and praise. And for a lot of these kids, that's the first time they've ever experienced that. So can, can you imagine that they want to feel that again? Yes. So the next day when they come in straight on the drum kit, on the sticks, hey, sir, sir, te teach me something else. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what happens. They get infused and the music becomes like a therapy. Once you do that, you've broken down a barrier now. You've built a kind of trust. Now you can start saying, all right, listen, I know, we know you love the drums, know you like music and you're excelling in that department. What's happening with, with maths? Oh, I just don't like it. I just it's too difficult. I can't do it. And I don't like the teacher. Before, you'd say, what's going on with maths? And you'd just be met with silence. Okay. There ain't nothing coming out of them. But because what the music's done is unlocked them, and now at least they're being honest. And then, oh, I don't like the teacher. I find it too hard. I've always hated it. Or in English, why aren't you, why aren't you, you know, doing the work in English? I can't read. Wow. Nobody knows I can't read. And at my age, I should read. So when the teacher's asking me to read something from a textbook, she's basically putting me up there in front of everybody so they can laugh at me when they find out I can't read. So I pick up the chair and I throw it at the teacher and I get ch chucked out of class. I'm like, okay, cool, I get that. Yeah. So what you need is you need some one-on-one -on -one learning, you need a tutor, let me speak to the head teacher, let me fill her in on what's going on. And let's try and work that out. And it can be between us and nobody else needs to know about it. It's fascinating. And yeah, and it's as simple as that. Well, you, you know? say that, and, and clearly it is simple, but it's it needs people to explain it because the temptation is when you read about music being in PRUs and things like that, the yeah. right, not, you don't even have to be right-wing, I don't think, to think, well, what use is that to the... Because only one in a million is going to make it as a recording artist. Yeah. What's the point in spending yeah, your time it's not making about music? That. It's but you've just made that crystal it, clear. Yeah. And there's two things that came across while you were talking. I don't know if it applies to you, 
but it certainly applies to the children you were talking about, is that for the first time they feel that they belong somewhere, or at least they, oh, that they're they worth fit, something, they or somewhere. they've achieved something. Yeah. And is it's that, like, look what you've done on the drums. If you worked hard at maths, then you could you could achieve in maths. Like, really? Yeah. If you Whatever you put your mind to, bro. Look how look, you're a natural on the drums. And you might find the maths hard, but you're, you're not an idiot. You know, I've, I've, I've seen your work. And I'm talking from, like, you know, of a fictional teacher's of perspective. Course, of course, But this is the way you deal with the kids. Is you go, look, I, I can see, you know, you're, you're not that bad at reading. You're not that bad at maths. But you're a brilliant drummer. So if you apply that same energy, you can pass your GCSEs. And that's, that's how you do it. You know, since we put the music room in there, we had 25% of kids being enrolled back in to mainstream education. Yeah, I saw that. And we, so we asked, like, so what was it, it before? It we works. said, what was it before that? And they said, it never happened. We don't know. We don't think there ever was a percentage because it just never used to happen. You know what I mean? So I do. We, we proved that what we're doing work. And what's really sad is that, you know, uh, it hasn't really made a difference. It's not like it's like some magical funding has come out from anywhere to help us kind of replicate it in another school or to even give that school really the the money they need to operate even better than they, they, they did with, with the inclusion of us. And in fact, it's, it's been it's even worse, worse. hasn't it? It's got worse. They just cut more and more funding. And the problem is if the, if the school is made up of... Um, kids that basically don't respond to academics or can't engage with academics, it means that really the, the only value or way of helping these kids is through vocations. But when the budget gets cut, it's always the vocations that go because yeah. if you cut the academics, it's not a school anymore. Sure. And that's the sad thing is that people, the government don't recognise that. And ultimately it's these kids that will go on to be the problems in society. Because they never will have felt... As if they have anything to contribute or as if they and, fit anywhere. Yeah, and, and because of that and the environments they're already in, they're sure. going to see the easiest way to make money is through criminal means. And therefore, you know, you're going to have, you know, the next set of criminal minds on, on, on your hands that have never been shown any kind of love or compassion and they are going to be ruthless and society is going to have to deal with that. I mean, I think with, like, you know, all those acid attacks that that, that was going on, I mean, I couldn't believe that was happening in London. That used to be um, a, a, a legend yeah. that happened in Jamaica. You know, if you go to Jamaica, you get acid thrown in your face. Yeah. I had a Jamaican friend that said, man, that is just not true. Like, yeah, it's happened, but that's just <laughs> not true. And and then suddenly it was happening in London. For me, that's that's like, that shows you, you know, a, a, a degraded uh, moral system within these kids that has been left to get worse and worse and worse and to the point where they think it's okay or they're comfortable with spraying acid in somebody's face, somebody who's done nothing wrong to them just so that they can get their motorbike, yeah? It's also... One, one. And, 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 and for me, that, you know, when I'm talking about stuff like I'm talking about in ill, in Ill manners and, and people's all up in arms, you know, about the fact that I was talking about that or they, they seem to think maybe I was I was glamorising it. You mean or, critics now? You, which, I just think, mean? yeah, like, the, the, you know, right-wing people that, that would see me aligning myself with that way of thinking as in I was condoning it or something. Simply you know, by describing it, you must be somehow defending it, which yeah, is a fairly or, stupid position, or, but or, it sells or, papers. Or, or, or kind of, yeah, glamorising it. Yeah. I, I think because people took that stance, they decided to just ignore what I was saying. And because society ignores it, it gets worse. And it gets so so bad that now the kids, 
their morals are so degraded that now they're throwing acid in each other's face. But it's it's, it's about self regard as well, isn't it? It's not. It's 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 because obviously this is a, an alien world to me. But when as a phone in host, when we talk about knife crime. And people who actually know what they're talking about ring me rather than people who just ring up and say, oh, I was a teddy boy in the 1950s. I used to carry it. Yeah. I'll tell you. It's about how much you value yourself. If you don't value yourself, you're going to be able to look at other people's existences as lacking value as well. And that's where the yeah. PRU comes back into it because what you're giving to these young people is, is a sense of value, a sense yeah, of it's Yeah, it's the Maslow pyramid of needs. It is, exactly that. Um, and like, you know, like the, the most basic ones aren't being met. Yeah. Food, shelter, warmth, warmth. Yeah. like they're not being met. You know what I mean? I and do. then we're expecting these kids to develop the other attributes. Do you think or and, even stay awake at school and pay yeah, attention? You know, hungry. Do you think now for a 15 year old, it's probably worse after eight years of austerity and, and sundry other political developments. It's worse for a 15-year-old now than it was for 15-year-old you. So my mate has got a 15-year-old son. Go on. My mate's from the street. And um, he's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want him going out. And I'm like, don't be stupid. I said, us going out in the environment that we grew up in is what shaped us. Yes. What do you mean? You can't be one of those parents. He goes, nah, man. He goes, it's different now. It's like kids will stab another kid for nothing now. You think, you think, I'm going to let him go out there and get acid thrown on his face for nothing because the kid wants his shoes or his bike. Nah, he's staying indoors and he's going to just... I'm happy with him playing online games. He's happy. I'm happy. You know, it makes me feel sick every time he walks out the door. I'm like, but you're you're from the street. Like, you, you must know that that is also unhealthy, you know, yeah, for him. For sure. You know, he can't, he can't be living a, you know, a closed existence like that. But I, I guess that says it all. You know, like that's the change. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not in a place to say it's 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 worse off. Uh, the, I guess the only way I would know is if I had a 15 year old kid myself, yeah. or if I was a 15 year old kid. You know, my kid's not at that age yet, um, so I'm kind of slightly out of touch, and I, I I I can't really you know put a definite answer on that. Is it worse or not? You know, I I just know that. Um, that, that friends of mine who grew up from where where I'm from and in the same environment are having reactions like that to what's going on. So, I mean, that that kind of speaks volumes. And, sure. and yeah, it is, it is really scary, but it's like one of them things that I've been saying is being allowed to fester for a good 30, 40 years. And, and, then, and then suddenly, like with the riots, it, it, it hit boiling point, you know? And, and everyone's kind of focusing on the fact that you know, the, the riots were not about Mark Duggan. Mm. Essentially, they was about opportunists um, looting. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, because we live in a society that bombards young people with advertising saying, you need these shoes, otherwise you ain't relevant. You need this computer, otherwise you have no value and you ain't cutting edge. And you need this really expensive jacket and all these products here. And you, and if you don't have it, you ain't got no status within this society. None of these advertisements are telling these kids how to attain these things in a legal way, or that they even need to attain it in a legal way. They're just saying you gotta have them. So these kids have an opportunity to get these things that society is telling them will give them value. Then they will get it, and they will get it by by any means. And and the the riots was their opportunity um, to do that. And what was sad about it is that. I think, you know, the ringleaders anyway, 
um, were, would have been kids that would have gone, you know, probably been in and out of PRUs. You know what I mean? I do. And 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 it was it was then it was like all the teachers that had been working to try and change the perception of kids that went to that to those kind of schools. Suddenly, all those those decades of work they'd been doing there, you know, was completely damaged by by the riots to the point where, yeah, now we've got this government that is just like you know, cutting the funds to to those schools to the bone, you know, and and ill manners in in that against what you've just said, it becomes becomes a protest song in 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 the purest tradition of the word, doesn't it? I mean, it was a it was a howl of outrage in a way about what had happened to the kind of young people that ended up in that yeah, situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it was, it was, but it, it was also like, is it, I felt I felt like the best way of talking about it was in that tongue and cheek yes, kind of, of satirical, really extremely sarcastic <laughs> manner that I did it because um, it is laughable. It's laughable the the, the 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 hypocrisy and contradictions and that that, that we see everywhere. Yet, it, it, no matter how much um, these these politicians get exposed, people still toe the line and they still kind of continue to live with the, these these blinkers uh, and they don't allow their minds to be open to to an alternative to the way they've been thinking sure. all these years and. That's something that I think my the way I tackle it is just I'm not going to change you guys, but I'm going to change your kids. <laughs> let's you ra- let's rattle through the chronology to bring us up to 2011, 2012, and then the six year gap to the mm. new album. So you played your song to Cliff at the PRU. Cliff found his mate at the recording studio. Yeah, you had a manager by tea time. Had you mm. thought before that day? That you might make a career out of music, had it? Had it, had it yeah, been? yeah. No, I did. Um, my so my dad was a musician. He was a punk musician, wasn't he? Was a... Yeah, he was in a band called the Warm Jets, and then he was in a band called the Pope. And um, so you knew it was a viable career. You knew that. It, well, the you... thing is, it was like a legend, right? Because by the time I was born, that weren't going on, and my dad had okay. found faith and, yeah. and became like a what I call a fanatical Christian. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the music part of it just kind of just was not in the picture. And I, when when my dad left, uh, and I, as I started getting older, my mum would tell me these legends of how she met my dad and how he was in this band. And my godfather would also, and so very Joe, close to your godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joe Fadil was was my godfather's best mate. Right. Uh, and he again, he would also tell me the stories. I'm like, really, my dad. The fat geezer with a beard, he won't stop reading out the Bible. Like, he was in a punk band. Like, yeah, he was really good. He used to have the audience eating out the palm of his hand. Oh, their music was 20 years ahead of his time. You know, all this stuff, right? So um, I was just kind of told by my godfather, like, music's in your blood. Okay. Therefore, you're a musician by default. And you never questioned it? Never questioned it. I was like, that's something I can do then. And it was mad because um, I go, it's ironic, not that... You know, not that my godfather probably would have known at the time he was saying that stuff to me that I would become a musician, but yeah, I just so happened to be able to sing and 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 uh, you know had a way with words. And when did you realise yeah. you had a way with words? So E seventeen, yeah, pretty big, and we was from E seven, right, right, uh, and so the kids at my school started their own little boy band called E seven. 
And I said, oh, let me be in it. They went, no, nah, we've got too many members. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? I was like, all right, let me write the songs. Went, yeah, yeah, all right, you write the songs. So I took it, like, proper seriously and went home and, like, wrote a song. Um, brought it to school. And he was like, Do you know, that's quite good. But obviously, they never actually formed the band. Sure, nothing just, ever happened. They never uh, had one rehearsal or nothing like that. But... Um, yeah, that was that was when I kind of knew. Yeah, like I can write, I can write. So nothing in the classroom then. There, there was there was never a moment where I think there was creative writing. Right. Yeah, creative writing, telling stories. I, I was always kind of into that and, and and good at it. You know. So how how quickly after getting a manager did did you start making money out of music? Money. I mean, you know, they give you an advance when you sign. So you got a record so, deal quite quickly. Yeah, I got a, I got a record deal, and then um, I got thirty grand for my records and thirty grand for publishing, so sixty grand in total. I was like, "This is amazing!" Yeah. Like, so I cont- I continued to live at my mum's because it wasn't like if I would have moved out, that money would have just gone, mm, and yeah. I didn't do nothing stupid. I didn't go and buy a new car. Why not? Or Why do you think? Like what was it? Because my- sixty grand is not enough. Like, and I wanted to, I wanted to make the record correctly yeah and within the first six months i knew it was going to be a long period because the a&r man just kept on putting me with all the wrong producers right you know and and we wasted he wasted wasted a lot of the the record label's money and it just yeah it got to the point with that album it took me three album three years sorry to make that album they must have been running out of patience by the end of it or not? Uh, well, I guess yeah, it got are... to a point where it was like, look, in the next six months, you need to have a record out. And I just said, all right, cool. I'm going to do it myself. I already had like assembled a small band and I'd met some good engineers. And I said, I'm just going to do it myself. Which I think when I listen back to the first record, like musically, it, it really isn't doing anything that special at all. Like it's such a naive record, like musically, but the lyrics were yeah. so on point. Um, and I always feel like that held it back, that it didn't have, like, a proper kind of hip-hop producer producing it. It was just kind of me doing it, and, like, I was learning as I was going But that's along. probably what got you noticed, isn't it? If it had been a really slick production, the lyrics notwithstanding, it would have sounded a bit more like other stuff. I don't stuff know, than it might yeah, or if I'd just done it all acoustic, like how I first started. Yeah. When I first started just playing acoustically and rapping over the top. Um, but what was the question you asked before that? Because I, I, I went off-piste, and I was going to answer that it was about how quickly you started making money how quickly you realized this was going to be a career. oh right then yeah we talked, so, so I've oh, got, yeah I've sorry got the answer yeah to that. that that was it it was like um i had i knew after six months i had to make that 60 grand last over like a long period of time right so i made sure i wasn't frivolous like i didn't go and just you know splash it on like a new car or you know just stupid expensive things and that that's the best advice i could ever give to any young artist who signs their first record deal like don't do that because there's a temptation to think this is it i'm over the line oh yeah but that's the the thing is then you're f the minute you do that you're f because you ain't made it sure you just you got your foot in the door that's it you ain't made it till you put a record out and then the record's successful when did you feel that you'd made it then well, I, I was very depressed after the first record. Why? Well, because I went into the first record thinking I, I did not compromise, you know? Yeah. Like, when they, when they wanted me to take certain swear words, like, oh, can you not say the word cunt? I'm like, nope, I'm saying that word. Um, I'm staying true, this is how I talk, blah, blah, blah. I did, did not compromise. And that made it very difficult for the record label to put singles out. And... Um, 
I personally feel they should have embraced that kind of punk ethic and energy I was coming with, and we should have just put out some really raw-ass videos to go with the raw songs, and they kind of didn't do that. They, they, they'd done the whole kind of pop thing with Mama Loves a Crackhead, yeah. and they kind of turned the whole my whole life into a soap, you know, uh, with the video. You, you could see it happening, and there was nothing you could do. Oh, to... man, I was in the video. And but look how much like, control you were exercising over was... everything else. It's taken you three years. You've said no to that producer, no yeah. to that producer, no yeah. to that producer. You deliver the album, and somehow it slips out of your grasp. Yeah, because it was... Um, I'd never done a music... Well, I mean, I had done a music video, but I'd done that stop frame right, yeah. music video, uh, No Good. But then this was the big one that they was going to do for, you know, like big the big single. Budget, production values. Um, so they, they they put me with this director and then we directed the video, or she directed the video. And I just the whole thing, like, you know, I went into it thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to dramatise my life. Yeah. That'll be all right. And then it was just really soapy, man. Yeah. It was like... And I was, whatever. <laughs> you know, you get good videos, you have bad videos. I don't want to diss anyone. Like, I'm not here to disrespect anyone. Like, sure. she's a good director. It wasn't, it's not about that. It's just um, that the way in which uh, the record came out, it was like the album dropped and then the single came out. Yeah. And then I was judged on the the success or non-success of the single when really all the single did was it helped boost the record sales on that week. And even I could see that, and I hadn't been in the music business that long. But suddenly I was judged. So, so they spent 60 grand on that video, and then the next video they gave me four grand or something like that. Really? I'm like, you lot are taking the piss. So then we done, we done um, uh, No More Eating. We done a No More Eating video where I had to go and do a live version of it for the video for some reason. Yeah. Uh, and then when that didn't really kick off, they was like, yeah, album's done, move on to the next one. And I'm like, what? I said, we haven't done a video for kids, we haven't done a video for Charmaine, for, for any of these things. Like, it's not going to happen, mate. Album's dead. Accept it. Move on. Write something else. I was just so, like, gutted. Um, so depressed for so long. And they'd, they'd taken my focus away from what the reason why I was doing what I was doing, which was to speak for the marginalised youth, yes. the ones that society looks at and writes off. I wanted to speak for them. I wanted to make music that when I first listen, sounds like a kind of disgusting hip-hop music you don't want your kids listening to. That was to hook you in, right? Outrage you so that mm. I get you listening. And once I got you listening, then, then get conscious on you, which I felt like the, the first album did. And the point was really to, 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 to do that as well, you know, to try and change some opinions. But mostly it was to talk for those kids that didn't have a voice. And that focus changed somewhere down the line and it became about selling records. Yeah. And it was definitely the label at the time that, that put the emphasis on that. And um, about three years later, I, I came back to East Coast Studios off, off Kensal Road in West London and... Um, the guy, the guy who runs it there, Philip, he went, Ben, I got this letter for you. I've had it for about three years. I opened it because I just had to open it because you're sitting there. You've got to read it. And I read this letter and it was from a kid uh, in Feltham. He said, your album got me through uh, Feltham. And it's, it's hard in here, you know. But there was times when, you know, you hear the stories about young offenders. Someone's giving you some shit, you know the violence that happens in there. He's talking in this letter about there was times when I felt like 
I could have caused somebody else harm because I was being threatened by listening to your music. And I don't know, something about the music just made me find a, a, a different solution to my problem. And I want to thank you so much for that. And on the back, he drew, he drew a picture of like, I guess it was him smoking a spliff. <laughs> and and there was spelling mistakes in it and all that. And it was beautiful. Yeah. It, was, it was beautiful. And I suddenly realised everything I set out to achieve on that record, I did it. And then I just, I let go. All that anxiety, all that depression, all that, that them bad feelings that I was feeling um, about the, the non-commercial success of my first record just went. And I was, I was like a new person and I, I was embarking on Strickland Banks by that point. Yeah. You know? And which, actually, which has a depth and a confidence to it that you wouldn't have had yeah. if you'd stayed in that dark yeah, place. Yeah, me, it, it, as well, it was like that dark place also created Strickland Banks because it was like, what do I write about now? I've mm. been experiencing, like, minor fame. Mm. I've been taken out of my environment. I've been put in this new environment which is basically worse than school because everyone's writing about you and criticising you and you can't even catch up with them to slap them up. You know what I mean? In <laughs> school playground, you can do that. In this, in this world, you can't. And also, if, if, you, if you bring the playground rules to the music industry, no one's going to want to work with you. They want to work with sure. aggressive people that hit them. You know what I mean? probably so, true. Yeah, so I had to adapt to that whole kind of thing and I thought, what do I write about now? Because all I've experienced is like minor fame, you know, being the first guy in the first slot at the festival where the shit is dressing room and no rider and <laughs> went up there on the train and all that, you know, and just seeing all these wankers, you know, getting like armies of people following them around, licking their ass, and they're not even that good, you know. And I thought, that's been my experience. And I thought, you know, it must be hard for some of these guys, though, because... yeah. You've got all these yes-men around you and it must be difficult to see the wood through the trees. And then I just thought, I've got all these soul songs I've been writing. I thought I'll take a little break from hip-hop and I'll just write some soul music. And I always wanted the next album to be like a big, one big story, like a film. Yeah. I thought, why don't you do an album about a soul singer, right, who's a proper arsehole, right? And uh, he gets wrongly convicted of a crime he didn't commit. And he just has to deal with all the shit that he's basically created because he's such an arsehole. And it was basically because I was in that environment, but I wasn't one of those assholes yet. Sure. That I was able to perceive it from that that point of view. And then that's how Strickland Banks was Could you have been created. one? Could you have been Oh, one? definitely. Yeah. No, not, um, everybody is susceptible to that. Nobody is immune. Um, and it's one of the things that, I, you know, when I think about, like, Justin Bieber and mm. stuff, like... How, you know, you know that there was a period where he was acting out. Yes. I thought, well, obviously, like, from a young kid, the guy's just kind of been in that environment, you know what I mean? And now he's he's turning into a teenager and he's got kind of cameras and all around him and everybody just putting a microscope on the way he's living. Let him be a teenager. Let him make some mistakes. Let him act like an arsehole. Like, we all kind of have to do it. So I feel... But we all um, need, we need one person in our life who can tell us. And I guess what the world you're describing... They don't have anyone. There's no one that ever tells them that they're being. What going back to like the PRU? No, just just anywhere in life. Whether you're whether you're an artist or whether you're just living a normal life. If yeah, you've got no one in your life that tells you when you're being you an know asshole, what? There, there, there is there, there is there's um, no break. a relation. There's a relation to like the the environment that the kids grow grow up in and fame. 
Because yeah. when, when you become famous, like, there's no hotline you can call no. where someone's going to pick up the other end of the phone and go, I know exactly how you feel, man. I went through the exact same thing. Because let's get it right. Pull up a chair. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you're a celebrity, you're in the minority. When we, when we talk about, like, the amount of people that live in this world, like, you you are in the minority. And and also, when, when you complain about not being happy or not mm. knowing what to do, people love it. They they kind of want famous people to fall on their ass and they'll say, like, stop crying, man. Yeah. You've got everything you ever wanted. You wanted to be on stage. You wanted to be center of attention. You wanted to be rich. Well, now you've got it. Deal with it. Stop crying about it. And I think a lot of people in that situation feel like that. So they can't sit there and, and be honest. they got to put on this front. And Which the, makes everything work. Oh, man, yeah, because you put on the front every, just to hide all the insecurities and then you just come across arrogant and then people hate you even more and it's just abuse left, right and centre, you know, if you, if you get it wrong, yeah. Two things then. We, we'll, we'll have to skip over the film because we're going to run out of time. But I listened to you talking about the first album, ending up pretty much thinking you have to do it yourself. Then I listened to you talking about the first video or the video for Mama Loves a Crackhead mm. and not being, um, not feeling that the planets had aligned for you, not feeling that that, that had been you're too soapy. Because yeah. really, to have gone off and, and written and directed a feature film, I, I mean, who the hell do you think you are? I mean, where do you get that confidence from? Because it seems to me part of it comes from seeing the so-called professionals do it, watching them very, very, very closely, and concluding that it's not actually that difficult and you could do it yourself. No, no. What? I knew it'd be difficult. That's the difference. When I, when, I, when I found myself on a film set, I asked as many questions as I could. When the sound man came and he put a mic on me, and then he put a second mic, I said, why are you putting two mics? He goes, because yeah. sometimes when you use lot act, like, you rub your chest. So I put one there, which ain't going to be as good as that one, but it just, it, in the case. cut, it gives the editor a second one. to. I was like, oh, okay, that's, I'm going to remember that. That's good. I remember that. And then, you know, all throughout the set, I was just asking as many I did, questions. I didn't mean it was easy. I, I meant, I, I meant you, you ask these questions and you persuade yourself that you could Yeah, do no, it. no, I know, I know what you're saying. Like, I don't, I don't think I ever looked at it and thought it was, it was going to be easy. But the reason why I felt like it was something I could do was really down to people telling me I couldn't do it. Right. Some people are built differently. If you tell someone they're not good at something and they'll never be good, quite a lot of people, that's like really the wrong approach. If, if you're using it as a way of getting someone to do something because you think it's going to pep them up mm. and put some fire in their belly, there's a lot of people that doesn't work with and it yeah. act, has the reverse effect and it actually makes them crumble. I'm not that person. The more someone tells me I can't do something, the more I want to prove them wrong. You know, well, you did. Um, Will yeah. you do more of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's got to be right. I think that story was right. It sure. was the right and the story. Time, the timing was. Yeah, and like just my whole life living in Forest Gate, my experiences with my friends. I lost a lot of friends to heroin and crack. Mm. You know, I don't mean in the sense that they're they're, they're, they're dead. They're just not. I there. mean, they're just not there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and like the stuff like especially the chicken shop scene in Ill Manners. Right. Like, that's true. That happened, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously I, I dramatised it. I made it about like a drug dealer and his phone, but that was about as far as I dramatised it. Like, you know, that actually happened um, to a girl in Forest Gate. And I just remember just, because I knew the people that, 
that, that, that did it. And it's not, they didn't force her to do it, you got to understand. You know, she stole their phone and it, this was her idea. But I remember them, me saying, well, what was you doing? While you was waiting outside them chicken shops, like, what was you doing? What was you talking about? I was, like, fascinated. Mm. So, you know, just chatting shit like we usually do, eating chicken. I said, you was eating chicken out of them places? He's like, yeah. I was like, man. I said, how, how much was the phone? It's like 30 quid. I said, I, I probably would have just left it, you know, bruv. I like, nah, man. She stole my phone, and everyone knows that's how she makes a living. So let's say she would have brought me back my money. I know she would have got her money that way. So I just waited outside until she's done it. I was like, well, I, I get I get the way you're thinking, but personally me, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, and, and I just remembered that, like, I needed to put that in a film. You can't force it, can you? You, 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 you? When you tell a story, whether it's on a film or in a song or whether you're rapping... You've got to have it, conviction. Yeah, You've got you to know what it is you're talking about, yeah, otherwise you're going to fall on your face. Yeah. Is that why there's been such a big gap before before the new album then? Six years... You've used the word spiritual. I know you don't mean it in a religious sense. Knowing what I now know about your dad, there's, yeah. there's no doubt that you've had a... Um... I have a relationship with God. I'm just not yeah. like, yeah, I'm not religious, you know. Um, and it is a spiritual album. And it was like the song on the first song, the song that created the album is called Grateful. And that was because I thought I knew what that word meant. Yeah. And I didn't, mate. Because when my... Only when my daughter was born and I'm waking up in the morning saying thank you to Finnair. And I actually saying, well, who are you saying thank you to? I don't know. God, the <laughs> universe, whoever I just thank you. I'm like, wow, that's gratitude. And I didn't really know what that was until now, but that's gratitude. And then so then I, I I wrote Grateful and then that informed the album. And then after that I wrote the others. But then some way halfway between that, like with everything that started happening in the world. I actually thought, you know what, this this album also needs to be political because it's about the world I'm bringing this child up in, you know, and I need to address that. And I can't just have this record out, which is all about kind of love and good stuff when all this bad stuff's happening, you know what I mean? It's just that that doesn't feel right. The tone of that doesn't feel right. So um, songs like Guess Again happened and the title track happened and and it's a war happened and you know um i don't know if you've heard all of them i haven't heard all of it but when you yeah. talk about the title title track heaven before all hell breaks loose yeah that's not a suggestion that that you're gonna mess it all up oh i think it's very very um realistic that that is a possibility I, I, like I said, for me to be that arrogant that to say that I would be immune to making uh, that kind of mistake would be setting myself up to fail. I think definitely that that's a possibility. And it's also everything I do is always a reminder to remind me that that's a possibility. You know, uh, me calling that album that is one of them things where can you imagine if I did mess it up and I called my album that? You know what I mean? It'd be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I don't think I could live with that. So it's like these things I create, they're also supposed to be deterrents for myself. Oh, yeah. You know, don't end up like your dad. Don't end up like your, your godfather and what he did to, to, you know, to his own family situation. You know, um, and so I think it, it was, it's one of those things, but it's also the world we're living in. It, it feels like we're on the cusp of something potentially really bad. Does. And we may look back, go, oh, fuck, you know, we don't know how good we had it. What were we playing? What was we complaining about? And I hope I'm wrong, you know. I don't want to be right just because I wrote an album with that title in it. I, I hope I'm wrong. 
but it just feels like that. And I think that's why I was gravitated to that moon image. Sure. Because it's kind of really interesting and really beautiful, but really scary as well. But at the end of the day, it's just a painting, you know? So again, it's it's like, I'm just trying to capture the mood of how I feel like I'm feeling and everybody else is feeling, but I really hope I'm not right about it. Gosh, that is the first time, that's the 29th Unfiltered, and it's the first one, I think, where I'm not sure I needed to be here. Uh, it, it, it started off just a little bit slowly, as I think Ben was finding his feet and trying to work out what, what I was at. But once he started talking, wow, uh, the man's a philosopher. Uh, seriously, I, I, I barely intervened, and when I tried to, he ignored me quite a lot, and just carried on exploring the theme that he was already exploring. We are up for a couple of awards, one of which you can vote in, the People's Choice Award. If you head over to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote, you can uh, show your appreciation, and that closes on the 17th of May. Uh, Obviously, wherever you downloaded this, you can subscribe to Unfiltered, which is always helpful. And I say this every week, but not not many people are taking notice. Feel free to leave a review, especially on iTunes, when you give us our five-star rating. Feel free to leave a review of a specific episode because I find that really interesting. And, of course, if you enjoyed the show, then then do let other people know because uh, we're picking up quite a lot of momentum. And it's days like today, speaking to Plan B, where um, you'll forgive me for thinking that we really are doing something. We are possibly reaching parts that other podcasts cannot reach. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.